Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on this special episode, the ED team runs a relay during London Climate Action Week to bring you five exclusive chats with some of the heavy hitters involved in this week-long event on climate action. The key themes to be addressed during this relay are net zero targets and what happens next. If you look at the sectors that will become a priority in the future, such as transport mm-hmm. and housing mm-hmm. and heating, um, those are very much going to be delivered um, at a local level or at a region level. Zero emissions in the built environment. All the elements are there and we are pretty happy to be involved in the first zero carbon social housing project in Europe. The green finance groundswell. I really feel that we're sort of we're crossing some sort of Rubicon here where, you know, it's no longer about raising awareness. I think, you know, it's very difficult to say that people don't realise that, you know, we are facing a climate crisis and this has implications across the economy. And so much more. So, hello and welcome to this special edition of the ED podcast. I'm ED's content editor, Matt Mace. Uh, usually running once every two weeks, we just couldn't resist the chance to put ourselves through another knackering relay during one of the busiest weeks of the year. What is a podcast relay, you ask? Well, during last year's Green GB week, myself, Luke, Sarah and the long-departed George attempted to cover as many events as we could to grab exclusive interviews with industry bodies, trade associations and end-user businesses along the way. And with London Climate Action Week in full swing, we decided to try this again. We'll be reflecting on our own journeys at the end of this episode, but with more than 100 events taking place in the capital this week, I'm handing the proverbial baton straight over to our Insight Editor, James Everson, who spoke to Planet Smart City, the UK-headquartered global leader in smart, affordable housing. The company has just completed a third round of capital fundraising, bringing the total amount raised in the last 10 months to more than €50 million. James was speaking to the company's deputy CEO, Danielle Rossellillo, who had flown into London for a few events this week to see how smart and affordable housing can help cities with their climate and well-being goals. So we're dropping into James and Danielle's chat around about a quarter of the way through to discuss more about how this affordable housing plan ties in with the UK's net zero aspirations. Enjoy. Our tagline at the moment is Planet Smart City, Place That Matters. And they matter because they respect our values in terms of uh, conserve ecosystemic resources, doing our best for the built environment, so the relevancy of spaces for people. Uh, The third thing is technology, and the fourth thing is uh, social innovation, of course. When we talk about uh, technology, you must see it as an enabler to reach uh, very, very, very sound objectives. I don't like to speak anymore about sustainability because it looks like we have a choice. Mm. We don't have a choice anymore. Everything we do today, especially in the real estate sector, which as you know very well, is at least one third of the total primary energy in Europe for uh, energy usages, needs to be sustainable, needs to be efficient. So all the technologies we put in place are aimed at uh, energy conservation and uh, sustainability by definition. How will we do it? Well, imagine a home in, uh, in Brazil. Uh, people will be able to check all the utility consumptions and they will be notified if they're consuming too much in comparison to the other people in the neighborhood through our platform and district app. 
We are a very vertical real estate company. Yeah. We source the land, we infrastructure, we build, and we sell the homes. But on the other side, we try to connect the bytes and the bits to the brick and mortar activity. In fact, we have a full-fledged digital unit uh, based in Turin, where we have our competence center, that is delivering a platform and an app for all our users. With the idea to um, benefit from all the digital services we put to the local level. So not only you can uh, check your consumption, but you can check the level of your water tank. If you have photovoltaics, you can check the production you're having. You can also access social innovation programs at the local level through our app. You can participate to environmental awareness at the local level. We try really to have a very holistic point of view in the things we're doing. Affordable housing worldwide sometimes is pretty poor, infrastructure is poor, quality is poor. We want to change all that. With the right scale and the right approach to your business plan, uh, you can really deliver innovation in this sector. And do you think, I mean, are these properties in terms of carbon emissions, are we talking net zero carbon in terms of housing? Do you think that there's a long-term future for creating uh, affordable housing that, you know, within globally that uh, that can achieve the kind of goals which we're starting to see uh, developed nations and developing nations want to achieve? Well, to be honest, I have a big news for that because people might think that development affordable housing because you have to be really careful about costs. Um, it can be difficult to achieve sound environmental results. But this is not true. In fact, we have just won an international tender. Our competence center in Turin participated to an international tender in Milan uh, in the framework of the international program of the C40 initiative. It was called Reinventing Cities. Mm. And um, we proposed, as well as uh, many partners that we have in uh, in this bid, we propose a new concept for zero carbon social housing in center Milan. Fine. And we won. And this Brilliant. is awesome because um, uh, I can't tell you the moment when is it going to happen. It will take a little bit of time to do every, to match everything and to, to start the actual building project. But all the elements are there and we are pretty happy to be involved in the first zero carbon social housing projects in Europe. That's fantastic. And is that something that you can see um, you know, as you say, obviously it's very early days, but in terms of being scaled up and, and something that is going to happen across other countries and, you know, maybe here in the UK as well? Sure. I mean, the reason for which, uh, you know, the, the value proposition of a planet smart city is quite unique is that we aim at um, developing affordable housing in all the markets where high level of housing deficit is. This is why we're looking at markets like Brazil, Mexico, India. By the same time, you can also look at mature markets. In fact, we are scouting possibilities in this very moment to try to develop also uh, affordable housing, high quality and energy efficient in the UK as well, potentially in the greater London area. It's not easy at all, but we want to show people that what we did in Milan, which was advisory, we didn't put equity into it, with third-party developers, can be done in other places in Europe. And the idea of developing in London is because we want to show the market that we can not only operate in emerging countries, but also in very mature ones. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, 
when you develop in mature places like Milan, London, you have so many lessons learned mm. that then you can transfer to the emerging markets you're going to operate in. And this is why we do it. And this is why uh, the group is different from other real estate operators because we have an in-house research and development center in Turin. I told you, it's called Planet Idea. Yeah. It's basically our competent center on smart solutions that is entirely dedicated to scout for the best um, technology and smart solution, not only for the environment, but on all the four pillars I mentioned to you before, in order to transfer this knowledge to the other countries we want to operate with. Having a competent center in Europe is quite unique because we are very close. There's a very high level of proximity to where innovation is happening. Yeah. Europe is teaching the world how to do co-working, co-living, co-housing. This kind of new trends can be transferred to the, to the new places like India or Brazil, where basically these trends are starting to exist. And uh, the idea is to anticipate in the new market what is becoming mainstream in the most mature market. Yeah, sure. And um, that is, it, it's very, one of the things we hear a lot over on ED here is that collaboration is something now which is so important to achieve the kind of um, sustainability and the kind of sort of low carbon goals that, uh, that need to happen really in, in, all, in order to meet the climate targets uh, that nation states yeah, have put together. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, right. is that all something that you see a lot of? are important. Collaboration, mm. I would add contamination, mm. because it must be a very high-level, multidisciplinary job. Sometimes, modern architects and engineers, you need relevant discussions with stakeholders. Everybody can uh, deliver a project, a design, a new plan. The problem is, is to do something that is really people-centric and to put around the table all the local stakeholders to do something that is really going towards the needs of people. Yeah, no, absolutely, that's fantastic. And um, is, it, is there anything that you feel that in the next five or 10 years uh, that you've seen, or, or maybe even beyond that, that, uh, that really could be done that perhaps at the moment isn't being done, that maybe is theoretical, but is not actually, there's no action on the ground happening that you'd like to see? Yeah, you see, when I talk about our concept of smart cities, it's more about technology that enables a radical paradigm shift in the real estate business. Real estate has been a laggard uh, to follow innovation. Imagine the ICT industry. Imagine the automated, the mm. uh, like um, the um, uh, the aviation industry, or yeah. imagine the car industry. In the last 100 years, we've seen incredible changes. When I was a kid, I was using my old telephone with a disc, mm. and now everybody's got a smartphone. Now we can fly with the fantastic planes. At the beginning of the century, it was like risking your life. Or industry, we went from uh, thousands of producers at the local level with a bunch of producers worldwide, and with Tesla, one of them. I mean, the real estate business has not changed that much. Sure, we have standards, sure, we are more into sustainability, but the building itself is an object, it's a manufact that has not changed that much. So what I think in the next 10 years will be key for this industry to move forward is to understand basically three important trends. The first one is that people are interested more in services rather than spaces, meaning uh, people now, even in uh, in large cities, also in large cities, sorry, mm. 
like London, may accept to live in smaller houses, but they want to live in a district packed with services. Mm. They want to have co-working, they want to have um, electrical recharging stations for the electric cars, they want to have bike sharing, they want to have delivery services, they want to have sharing economy services. So the real estate developer must understand that spaces are less important than services. And this is something that in Planet Smart City we are so keen on that we established a company in, um, in the UK called Planet Service, which will be totally dedicated to deliver goods and services at the local level to the inhabitants of our development. Because this is what we do when we build a city or a district, no matter if it's Brazil or India, we stay in the development for 10 years. We provide the development with community managers that animate the community with social innovation programs. And we provide people with services and goods through our app. Of course, we, we will take a cut, a transaction fee in this operation, mm. but again, uh, of course, it would be an extra revenue stream, but for us it's important because with that money, we could, for instance, finance the smart solutions we put on the ground. You know, yeah. our development, Wi-Fi for free in public areas is a must. How do you pay for it? We have a model in which we can stay there and everything can be financed in our business plan. Because the worst you can do is to build something awesome, have a community that works beautifully for two or three years, and then let it go is not sustainable, is not what we like. The second trend that real estate developers have to understand is that digital transformation is here to stay. Yeah. So IoT, Internet of Things, sensors, services for people that are based on sound technology is relevant and it's here to stay. Real estate developers must go out of the just brick and mortar world and embrace digital technology. And when I talk about digital technology, James, yeah. I'm not just talking about um, IoT sensors that can provide you services like who is in the house, how much are you consuming? No, I'm talking also about the digital transformation on the design and planning. Today we have fantastic tools like parametric master planning. We have uh, built-in information modeling. All these tools could be applied even at the design level yeah. to make your project a better one. Last but not the least is the uh, prefabrication and modular uh, construction systems. Yeah. Uh, today we have some examples in the world, look at companies like Caterra for instance, they are doing a beautiful job in understanding how off-site production can speed up the operation, yeah. provide a better quality and faster product and sort of embed the sustainability criteria that you need in the new project. Right, fantastic, yeah. Well, so, you know, when, when yeah. we speak about smart cities, people think that I'm speaking about flying cars. Yeah. Not really. No. There's a lot that must be done before flying cars. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a great point to finish on. So, Daniel, thank you very much for your time today and uh, speak soon. So, thank you to Planet Smart City for that and, of course, for James uh, for that interview. And we'll be hearing more from him later on. But up next, we're going to be hearing from my past self. On Tuesday, I was at the Green Finance Summit in Guildhall to hear about the launch of the Green Finance Strategy in the Green Finance Institute. The strategy outlines how the UK plans to place financial services at the heart of the net zero transition. And I was fortunate enough to grab some time with Dr. Rianne Mary Thomas, the Chief Executive of the Green Finance Institute, to discuss a bit about the strategy and what she's been up to during a very busy few weeks. 
Then, in true relay style, I am handing straight over to Sarah, who, and perhaps I misheard her, was apparently in a crypt of some sort this week. Okay, so joining me on the phone right now is Rianne Mary Thomas, the uh, CEO of the Green Finance Institute. Um, Rianne, who is also an OBE, uh, will be acting as Chief Executive for this uh, City of London backed uh, institute. And prior to that, she was Global Head of Green Banking and the Founder and Chair of the Barclays Green Banking Council. Um, obviously, Barclays are one of those companies that have taken a real kind of leadership step in the area of green finance before it kind of hit this groundswell that it has. And Rianne um, also represented Barclays on the uh, TCFD um, task force as well. So Rianne, thank you so much for joining me on the phone right now. Uh, we met very briefly at the Green Finance uh, Summit yesterday. Um, and so thank you very much for join, joining me now for a quick discussion before your next event. How has um, London Climate Action Week uh, been so far? I imagine it's been lots of... Uh, continuous journeys to various events? Well, firstly, let me say, you're, in your introduction, you used the word groundswell, and I think that's absolutely the right word for us to be discussing during London Climate Action Week. Clearly, we were just sort of halfway through, and I'm uh, apologies for any background noise. I'm in the anteroom before another event. These are all sold out. Yesterday, we had 1,300 uh, registrants for the Green Finance Summit, where we launched the Green Finance Institute, and a waiting list of, of another couple hundred. I really feel that we're sort of we're crossing some sort of Rubicon here, where you know it's no longer about raising awareness. I think you know it's very difficult to say that people don't realise that you know we are facing a climate crisis, and this has implications across the economy for businesses, and importantly for finance. The question now is, how do we turn those macro trends into business stratagems, into products and services, and into doing business differently so that you know, people can get to their desk tomorrow and do something differently to what they did yesterday? Um, I had a huge honor yesterday of interviewing uh, President Mary Robinson, the uh, former president of, or first female president of, of Ireland, and, and obviously a a UN climate envoy who's just been a leading champion for climate justice for a long time and now is a is the chair of the elders. And she gave in this fantastic interview to a packed guild hall um, some points about, you know, a real call to action and saying that we need to all make this personal. And that was one of her first points. Her second point was about we need to get angry and we need to, we need to act. Um, and the third was about um, she said very profoundly about imagining the future that we're all going to live in and, and how we need to hurry towards it. But her first point, I think this one about making it personal and figuring out how do you use your platform in business, in finance, whatever it is you do, or in journalism as you're doing, um, to really contribute towards this transition towards a zero carbon economy. The opportunity here is that every aspect of the economy is going to be impacted. And that, by extension, means all our jobs, all our roles, all our focus. So if we genuinely understand what that means. And so figuring out London Climate Action Week this week is a fantastic opportunity for so many people, maybe who are new to this conversation, but who are intrigued and want to understand how they build the expertise, what, they sh what should they be doing, 
how they build their network in this space. I think this is, you know, 150 events this week. I think this is a, it's a real testament to what London could do. Yeah, I, I really resonated with the uh, the get angry and, and act um, kind of advice that, that Mayor Robinson gave because we've we've seen it firsthand um, in in the news that we've been covering at ED with the the climate youth strikes, the extinction rebellion aspects, and and how that's actually led to action with the UK passing that net zero law, um, and all of these kind of come. And they, they just build up this momentum and it just pushes and pushes and pushes and we write about net zero every week, we write about climate youth strikes every week. And and green finance was one of those ones where the TCFD kind of got introduced and then it kind of dropped off a little bit and came back in. And it was always just kind of bubbling on the surface, um, but it now kind of feels like with the launch of the green finance strategy we're at a point where this is now a, a kind of uh, a key and mainstream consideration for businesses that want to be sustainable. Green finance is now um, here to stay. and obviously and so obviously the the strategy was was launched and you had the chance at the the summit to to be able to speak about it in, in detail but I imagine there's been a lot of background work so what was your kind of contribution to the to the strategy so the my contribution to the strategy is a, a small part and uh, you know hats off to Bayes and to the Treasury for uh, the months of work that has gone into this um, important political signal um, there was a Green Finance Task Force that was uh, convened in 2017 under the chairmanship of Sir Roger Gifford and uh, pulling together um, actors from across financial services, from insurance, from banking, from venture capital. And uh, we came up with 35 recommendations for government under 10 different themes. Um, one of those uh, recommendations was to set up a Green Finance Institute, which obviously we, we launched yesterday um, as, a, as a hub for uh, green finance activity in the UK um, and, and it was good to see a number of other um, of the initiatives picked up across the green finance strategy. I think the important thing about the finance strategy is it's a first step. Um, there is a, a review mechanism that is, that is in the strategy saying that you know they will review how government is doing against this and therefore I think it really is the first step in what is hopefully an even more ambitious journey um, to help us get towards that zero. It's great to know, and, and for, for anyone listening to the episode right now, we do have a bit more of an in-depth uh, discussion with Rianne on, on the website that, that kind of outlines, the, I suppose, what, what businesses need to, to be ready for around um, the strategy. So do go check that out. And just before I hand over to our reporter, Sarah, who I believe has um, grabbed a speaker from one of her events, um, and what's the rest of the week uh, look like for you? Uh, what does the rest of London Climate Action Week look like for you? I imagine it's, uh, it's lots of uh, moving around, lots of events as well. It's a busy and exciting week. I've got quite a lot of focus on resilience for the rest of the week, resilience and adaptation, which is obviously a, an even trickier aspect of um, the climate crisis for the financial services to finance. Um, compared to, to climate mitigation. So really pleased that, that, that there's so much focus on that. Um, and then uh, a race to the finish uh, Friday evening uh, before a, a bit of a relaxing weekend, I hope. Yeah, I think everyone's going to be in need of a relaxing uh, weekend after this. London Climate Action Week's a great idea, but it's just a shame that it is, uh, is a week because there's so much going on, you could definitely spill that out across the course of uh, a month. But, Rianne, um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you on the, on the podcast. Um, I'm going to hand over to our reporter, Sarah, now, but um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Great. Well, thanks for that introduction, um, Matt. And for my section now, we're over... Um, well, we need to imagine that we are over at the crypt in London, which is underneath Trafalgar Square. 
um, which is where I was yesterday evening for um, for a Green Alliance event entitled Acting on Net Zero Now. And this was a really interesting panel um, led by a representative from Client Hearth um, with, with speakers including um, one of the leaders of the School Strikes for Climate in Birmingham, um, as well as Ed Miliband, who has been talking about net zero since before it was a thing for major government. Um, and this alliance was kindly organised by the Green Alliance Head of Politics, Paul McNamee, who is on the phone with me now. How are you doing, Paul? Um, yeah, very well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask a bit more about putting together this event for Climate Action Week. So obviously net, net zero is the flavour of the month and the theme of a lot of a lot of these discussions. But um, did you choose this topic before the announcement came that T- Theresa May was committing to this before she left office? Um, and... So yeah, how did you choose the topic and and these panelists to go with it? Um, yeah, so this is something that we've been thinking about for a while. So I can say that this was planned before um, it was put into legislation last week. I'm I'm, I'm good, but I wouldn't have been able to turn the event around in, in kind of five days. Um, this is part of um, some work that Green Alliance is doing at the moment um, on a project called Cutting Carbon Now, and it's basically looking at, at net zero and the long term target and saying um, this is absolutely fantastic. Actually, at the moment, the UK isn't even meeting its fourth and fifth carbon budget. Of course. Um, and we need to start actually putting action in now that will help us meet our current targets as well as meeting the new targets of net zero. So that's kind of like one of the reasons we wanted to focus on this now. I think the now in the title is, is the most important word in there. Mm. At the same time, um, we co-hosted this event with IPPR, who are kind of starting the Environmental Justice Commission. And that's looking at, um, Parliament has declared a climate and environment emergency, um, and and you know there is there does feel like a political onus to act on it. But how do you how do you act on it while also linking and championing championing economic and social justice? Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, um, we wanted to do this as part of London Climate Action Week because we know that the the kind of where the UK has succeeded on carbon reduction in the past has been through the power sector, which has all been driven at a national level. But if you look at the sectors that will become a priority in the future, such as transport mm-hmm. and housing mm-hmm. and heating, um, those are very much going to be delivered um, at a local level or at a regional level, working with national government. So it's really important to to get that kind of local um, viewpoint in as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And then um, it was only an hour long, this event, but there was so much packed into it. And that, what you mentioned there, was probably... Um, my key takeaway: the discussion of how net zero won't work without um, without without the just transition. So that social justice um, and strong economic policies as well. So that was my key takeaway. But um, as someone who is infinitely more experienced in green politics than myself, what were your key learnings from from this session? Yeah, so I think I think that that was definitely one of them, and I think Ed Miliband in particular, you know, is talking very strongly about that. Um, I would say the, the other thing that came out is you, you mentioned um, Scarlett, who, who was the climate striker from Birmingham. Um, I thought she, she spoke so eloquently. She was so good. Um, and the main kind of message that she was doing is um, that we won't get anywhere without taking people with us as well. Mm-hmm. So there is, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of activity around climate at the minute. Um, and as you said, next year was clever the month at the minute. But how do we talk to those people um, and, and bring them with us and, and so that, that kind of tackling climate is not this kind of, this, this middle class privilege. Mm-hmm. And that actually came to me to 
then just one of the one of the um, one of my other takeaway points as well was um, that of governance. Mm-hmm. So actually, that came up quite a lot, and, and governance feels like a, a, it sometimes can be like a bit of a, a, of a dull subject. But I think um, some of the points that were raised were particularly interesting. So Isabella Darnell on the panel, who, who works with Seahorse Communications, actually one of her recommendations that she would like to see was a net zero subcommittee of cabinet. Yeah, that was really interesting. Sorry, go on. That was a really interesting point as well. I forgot to mention that one. Yeah, and, and for me, that was, that, I think that was the, the, the most interesting part I came away with. So in the same way that we have a security subcommittee or, you know, on a war footing, you would have, like, the war subcommittee that brought all the relevant cabinet members together. Why are we doing that for, for the climate and environment emergency? Why are we doing that for, um, for net zero? And that's kind of bringing DEFRA, um, BAEs, transport, um, MHCLG, covering housing, the Treasury. And kind of, you know, if we're taking this seriously and we do think it's an emergency, um, then kind of act like having the cabinet fit for that. Mm. And then one final other thing on governance um, was uh, Leah Davis, who was there from the Greater London, uh, Greater London um, from City Hall, sorry, um, talking about identifying exactly where these problems are best solved mm. and making sure that, for instance, if this is, if if a policy is best delivered at a London level or at a combined authority level or at a local level, is government is, is central government giving the powers, the funding, and working with those um, audiences to make sure that they have the powers to do that. Mm. And then I just wanted to say there, I forgot to mention at the beginning, but the um, the other panellists I've got in front of me now, it's um, the Birmingham School Strike for Climate that you mentioned is Scarlett Westbrook, who's definitely worth checking out. This is a young woman who's incredibly impassioned about this topic and has already got her politics A-level, even though she's, I think, is it 14 or 15? Um, I think she turned 15 uh, this week or last week, yeah. Yeah, so she's definitely one to Google. And then she was also joined by Izzy Gornall, who manages Seahorse Communications and sits on the Conservative Environment Network as well. So I just wanted to flag that before we wrap up. Um, and to, to wrap up, I wanted to ask for, so this is the first London Climate Action Week um, ever. So what, what is it like to be in that space that Green Alliance is, is in, where you've been focused on this topic for for years and years and then based in London to, to see this happening? And what are you guys up to for the rest of the week as well? Yeah, so um, this, this was our main event for the week. So I'm glad to say that I can just go and enjoy everyone else's events now. Mm-hmm. I've got worrying about ours went pretty well, so, you know, I can, I can relax a little bit now. Um, but just overall, it's just um, an unbelievably exciting time to be working in, in this kind of sector. So even in the last few weeks, we've had the net zero announcement. Um, it's looking very possible that the UK will be hosting COP26 in 2020, the, the, the climate COP. Um, last week, we were involved in um, the mass lobby of Parliament, where we had 12,000 people come from all over the country to meet with MPs to talk about net zero and um, legislating um, an environment bill. Uh, we've got London Climate Action Week this week. You know, in the past six months, we've had extinction rebellion, we've had school strikes coming up. We've got Green Great Britain week later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2020 is going to be a super year where we have COPs, we have uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity, we have um, ocean summits. So I just think overall that I, I, I've never felt like um, that there's been a narrative in the mainstream and, and particularly in the media that has been so positive about that and that there's been such a kind of call for change from the general public. Um, so yeah, massively exciting. I think that does come massive opportunities but risks as well. I think um, we, like as a, as a sector, we need to continue to be kind of joined up in our messaging and working really, 
being very clear about what we actually want to get out of all these very exciting things that are happening, and then making sure that we're actually nailing down our asks and, and you know getting stuff in place, some solid commitments that we can actually start working on now. Mm-hmm. Well, I have my fingers crossed that the rest of the week for you will um, bring about those discussions and collaborations that you need. But thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks again to Rian and to Paul for their time. And as my past self mentioned, there is a more in-depth piece on the ED website outlining uh, Rian's thoughts on what the green finance strategy means for UK business. So three interviews in, and that means we're just about at the halfway point for this episode. So join us very shortly for part two of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, where we discuss innovating our way to net zero before being joined by a climate leader live. So, hello and welcome back to our London Climate Action Week special. Um, before we get on with our next chat, I, I realise we haven't really spoken to any of the actual team. As I've mentioned, we've been running around an awful lot this week, so it's probably best to catch base with them whilst we can. So, Sarah, how has your London Climate Action Week been? Super hectic. I mean, I was off on annual leave last week enjoying the tennis in Eastbourne, and this is a complete 180 <laughs> on that. Um, but it's the best kind of busy. It's really inspiring to see all the events um, so well attended and just such a breadth of events being offered in the first instance. There are events being run from everyone to businesses, charities, think tanks, NGOs, schools, local authorities, and it's just really inspiring to see the um, yeah the breadth of people that are getting involved and leading on this agenda. Yeah, there was almost too much choice. Um, <laughs> yeah, a, week, yeah. a, week, a week wasn't long enough in that sense. And... Uh, and James, you've, you've had a, a, a quite an interesting week. You've been busy um, on desk at, yeah. uh, covering a few of the podcast segments, but you've also managed to wrangle yourself a day off midweek as well. So yeah, you, you, yeah. it's been must have been quite a quite an up and down week <laughs> yeah, for you. Yeah, it's been a strange week, really. Um, I think the one thing I've really got from it is seeing how much the Climate Action Week has been a really big event in terms of the collaboration. You know, we talk a lot, don't we? We hear a lot from sustainability professionals about trying to bring everyone together and it sounds to me and it seems to me from everything that the ED team have done that that is definitely very much uh, very much on the case in that sense so yeah really great yeah and we had the task of getting a lot of interviews for this episode and I, I, we've got the next one um, coming up so Sarah I believe you had arranged this interview um, you'd arranged to speak with Climate Kick on the sidelines of um, one of the events but I mean time constraints which is um, quite a recurring theme for, for this week um, <laughs> meant that um, you, you you had to kind of pass the interview on and then you weren't um, around time constraints again so I had to do the interview um, uh, really getting into the relay spirit of that episode and mm-hmm. passing that on there um, but why don't you briefly describe why we're talking to uh, Climate Kicks Chief Executive Kirsten Dunlop and then we'll listen to my phone call with her. Okay great so she was speaking at the Economist Climate Risk Summit it's the first time they have hosted Um, this particular summit. They've been running sustainable business um, summits for years now, Um, but this was all about making it financial. Um, And there are a lot of finance giants, there are a lot of investors, um, but Climate Kick's job in all this is to champion innovation and funnel investment into it in a way that is sustainable. Um, So I just thought that that would be a good angle to come at this finance piece from. Um, and also because the panel that she had chosen to sit on and to shape was called The New Normal. 
Yes. Which I just thought was a really inspiring title and some, yeah. something that has been a recurring theme of this weekend of Net Zero. And as you'll yeah. hear during this conversation, um, Kirsten's very passionate about what that new normal should look like in, in regards to how business really grasp uh, innovation. So um, let's, let's get on with this then. So here, here is that um, phone call with uh, Climate Kick Chief Executive Kirsten Dunlop uh, in full. Okay, so up next on the London Climate Action Week relay that uh, the ED team has set itself, uh, we have Kirsten Dunlop, the Chief Executive of Climate Kick, uh, on the phone. Uh, Kirsten, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. it's probably a very busy week for you. Um, but to start with, why don't we why don't we um, get a bit of a refresher for for those who may not have heard of Climate Kick or haven't heard from them in a while. Um, what what it is the organisation's up to and, and why you're you're taking part in London Climate Action Week? Thank you very much, Matt. We are we are a public private partnership, so we're an organization that operates, if you like, with and through others across the whole of Europe. We fund and we orchestrate climate innovation, um, directed so innovation directed at both decarbonisation of core industries, of our cities, of our land, land use practices, of our, our core materials, um, and of the way in which the financial services industry addresses climate change. And we fund and orchestrate innovation directed at uh, resilience and adaptation in the face of climate change effects. We, are, we consist of a community of nearly 400 partners, uh, stretching from large corporations, concerned to take a proactive role and contribution to climate change mitigation and adaptation, all the way through to research institutions, universities, city governments, regional governments, small and medium enterprises, startups, students, um, and consultancies, not-for-profits, and, and community organisations. So it's a very diverse community. We operate across all European countries, 28 European countries. We're physically present in 23. Um, and we are funded from the European Commission, so we are funded through through the European Institute of Innovation and Technology, uh, as well as a number of other funders from both private and public side, all concerned to look at how innovation might form part of the solution for climate action. Okay, nice and concise uh, introduction there, so for those who um, aren't aware, I, I last sp- spoke to Climate Kick, I think it was in 2016 or, or 17, and it was very much focused on that innovation um, part of it and it was all about trying to you know the I suppose the mission statement for lack of a better word of climate kick was helping to get innovations away from a single point to this more holistic uh, approach can you just kind of clarify a bit for everyone on, on what that means yes absolutely we um, as part of the European uh, Institute of Innovation uh, and Technology we the kick in our name stands for knowledge innovation community and it means that we have been operating now for nearly 10 years uh, with an approach to innovation that is based around three pillars. Um, innovation coming from industry research and development and from university research, looking to commercialize it and bring it to market. Entrepreneurship in the classic sense of kind of very, very early stage, uh, pre-seed incubation, acceleration of startups and venture building. And a lot of, in, uh, of activity, important activity in education, um, including graduate, postgraduate education, but also schools, primary, secondary schools, boards of directors, professional requalification and training, and support for those working in public administration to think about procurement innovation and so on. Um, what we've seen over 10 years of activity is that, in part because of the nature of the model, and in part because of the way in which innovation is usually designed and thought about, and the, and the relationship between 
the money that is deployed in, in a grant funding mechanism and the expectation of being able to show value for money. But the, predominantly, we have supported single-point solutions or, or the, the way in which innovation has played out is that what has come through all of this effort has been single-point solutions. Um, and we see uh, the, the partners that we deal with and that we serve, the cities, dealing with multiple projects that are also about specific projects, specific solutions, very often separated by categories or silos or, or a kind of a notion of connecting to particular industry directions. Um, very often they are, in the end, incremental solutions because they're easier to fund, easier to predict, and easier to kind of assume or, or look for reliability in terms of, of um, an outcome, value, a predictable outcome and value for money. They're very often technology focused, which is not a bad thing, but it's leaving on the table some of the most challenging aspects of what we need to do around addressing climate change, which is not the technology, um, but the behaviors, the social systems, structures, the economic models, the, the shifts to the way in which we reframe the financial system, our policy and regulation mechanisms, and the way in which we engage communities in self-transformation in using technologies and, and deploying them, joining them up, and having them provide integrated solutions. So much of our reflection in the last two years has been, what should we be doing for the next 10 years, especially given the framing of the IPCC report on 1.5 degrees that, that gives us, clearly gives us 11 years to put in some fundamental radical uh, structural change and to aggressively decarbonize by 50% with respect to where we are now um, in order to be, have any hope of, of achieving something that sits below a two degree um, warming effect. So what our reflection has been is that our next chapter of life needs to move extremely fast into a different approach to innovation and one that is deploying innovation in such a way as to effectively catalyze systemic change. That was um that was a really <clears throat> thorough explanation, and you, you really covered a lot of uh, ground there, Kirsten. So thank you for that. And the, it was interesting that you did touch on legislation, finance, and that kind of city approach. Um, with London Climate Action Week being the theme of this this episode, uh, against that backdrop, London's obviously and the UK has launched its green finance strategy, um, and has legislated that that net zero uh, target. Just to just to finish off, because I'm a bit where we are pressed for time. It'd be great to see how you. How you think um, that the UK legislating for net zero will um, kind of affect the the shift in that kind of joint up approach that you've already touched on? Well, the fact of putting climate commitments with climate action into legislation is one of the most encouraging signals worldwide. Um, in, and indeed, from my perspective, not only represents best practice but an extraordinary leap forward in terms of the opportunity that London and the UK has to show what good looks like and to show what's possible. By putting things into legislation, you effectively create um, predictability, consistency, and pull through in what is expected of businesses, what's expected of communities and councils, what's expected of people to think about how they would find solutions to make those commitments possible. And that's exactly the kind of uh, sustained political commitment, effort, and, and um, if you like, almost the enabling the infrastructure for an enabling environment in which um, the work that innovation can do to find solutions and get them working together on the ground can be most effective. So we are here uh, enthusiastically and supporting every effort that London makes. It's one of the biggest cities on the planet, one of the most complex cities on the planet. 
what London, if London goes big on this and London Connect this happen, it opens the door, it establishes a precedent for others it's very difficult to argue with. And it certainly also from a, from a, from a self-interested perspective gives London, gives London an enormous advantage in terms of learning faster, earlier, kind of getting itself into the market of the next generation of urban environments, of, of economic structures, market structures and businesses that we need. Okay, Kirsten, that's, that's brilliant. A real, um, a real kind of positive note to, to finish this conversation on. Um, obviously, London Climate Action Week is still going on. Is, is there any plans for you for the rest of the week in terms of <clears throat> events you're at? Ah, yes. So this afternoon, um, I have a, I'm speaking at an event talking about learning um, because obviously one of the most important things here is about capacity and capability. From my perspective, ultimately, as, as I mentioned, the problem of climate change is essentially a social problem. It's a social and behavioural problem. We have technologies. It's, it's a question of how, how deeply and inherently we understand what we need to do with them and how quickly we need to develop them further. But it, it really is about social change, social justice, um, the just transition, the kind of the elements of which we rethink our ways of being, uh, being with each other. So learning, capacity building, helping people acquire new and different skills, the mindsets that it takes to to handle the kind of complex, difficult, adaptive change that we need to, to kind of force ourselves through, but also handle the effects of what a rapidly warming world is doing to us. We are already living, we've just had a week in London of extreme heat. Um, those effects don't go away. They do put enormous emotional, psychological stress on individuals and on communities, and as they intensify, we need the kind of adaptive capabilities to be physically, emotionally, socially resilient as we try to accelerate the way we change. So that's a very important event from my perspective. Tomorrow there's a Club of Rome event on the climate emergency and emergency planning in London, very pertinent given the important role that Extinction Rebellion has played and Fridays for the Future in helping the city think about the relationship it has, the duty of care it has to people who are deeply concerned about their responsibilities and the speed of decision-making. Um, so for me, it's a, it's a particularly rich week and, uh, and a, lot to, a lot to learn from and a lot to listen to and try to contribute to. Yeah, we've certainly been <clears throat> learning a lot from uh, Edie's point of view as well and, and are trying to contribute it in our own way as well. Um, Kirsten, I've got to hand over to our next uh, interview on this relay now, but uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. So for the last 10 minutes of this episode, the ED team agreed that it would be best to uh, chat from the sidelines of our Energy and Sustainability Leaders Club Summer Lunch. Uh, we're actually at the Oval right now on what is a pretty glorious day with some pretty spectacular um, views. And I think we have more than 150 uh, so-called leaders uh, from Energy and Sustainability in the room downstairs enjoying their food and drink. Um, so I will apologise to our guest speaker from, from taking you uh, from the festivities. But um, Joan Krajewski, the General Manager of Safety, Compliance and Sustainability at Microsoft Corporation, thank you so much for um, joining us for a, for a quick chat. Thanks um, for not a problem. How have, you, how have you found today's event? It's just been a culmination of several exciting events during the week. Um, but this morning I attended the um, forum on circular economy and what was really unique to me is even though there were even though I'm coming from the technology space and there are others from the food space and from the railways and from you know the recycling arena they were all dealing with the same issues of how to you know really build that muscle around the circular economy and I learned a few things 
um, about their areas that I didn't know that were kind of surprising to me, like the problems that um, the railways are facing with um, the issue of single-use plastics and um, food packaging. It's not an area that I'm familiar with, but on the other hand, um, packaging is an issue across all technologies, all uh, industry sectors, so I really learned a lot from the different points of view. And um, as much as I'd like to ask all the questions, like I said, the ED team is here, Sarah and James, so um, I'll, I'll hand over to you to ask some uh, questions as well. Um, yeah, sure. Great to meet you, Joan. Um, yeah, great to meet you. And I wanted to ask basically about an event that I really wanted to go, but just okay. physically couldn't get to, and it was the Aldersgate Group's uh, um, event on technology and how it can be used to meet net zero. Um, so I was wondering if you could... Um, talk a bit about what you were discussing there and then also what you could learn from your, your peers at that event. Well gosh, um, at that event, which was also well attended, like all the events I've seen, it's been amazing the enthusiastic participation. But that event, with respect to technology, um, I had the great opportunity to speak about, again, the circular economy and how technology can really enable that process. Mm. Um, and so it was a day full of um, different points of view from the building sector, the energy sector, um, the technology sector, and other um, industry sectors. So um, in my case, uh, what I generally spoke about was the fact that technology could really enable a circular economy. And I'll just give you a few examples if you'd like to hear them. Yeah, please. Um, for example, and with the issue of the reuse of, of mechanicals or machinery, you know, we all have the issue of complexity and how there are a thousand different types of models and types and so forth, but with the use of augmented technology that one could actually be working with someone on the other side of the world with an augmented uh, lens and be able to fix almost everything by with the overlay of the schematics and so forth. And also another problem that many of us are sort of struggling with in terms of reusing parts, artificial intelligence can you know, parse out the different types of plastics, the different types of parts for reuse, you know, put them in the proper bin uh, for sorting out in reuse. And um, then with respect to actually getting raw materials or parts and reintroducing them back into the supply chain, then we can also use blockchain to preserve the purity of the materials and to ensure secure traceability. So. There's a lot of different uses that we can see in terms of technology that spread across, you know, cross-sector industries and can work in a lot of different scenarios. So the day was super well attended. There was a lot of um, intergroup participation and uh, a lot of great exchange of ideas. That's really interesting. One of the things that you sort of touched on there that you mentioned this morning in the Waste and Resource Strategy Roundtable was around the reverse logistics and how you would design you wouldn't design something like it is at the moment in terms yes. of trying to achieve the circle I wondered what your thoughts were in terms of trying to overcome that really quite significant problem yes. that you've got all these different streams going um, on. I actually have a plan <laughs> surprisingly. Um, I, it's something that I've really thought a lot about because uh, Microsoft, in terms of building hardware, builds complex products. And so um, I think there are two things that we really need to overcome. One is currently 
the scheme schema that we're dealing with in the EU, EU, EU is built around a recycling scheme. Well, we really need to build around a reuse and um, parts harvesting and recycling and reintroduction scheme. And so one of the, we, ha we have to change the policies. One of the policies we need to change is instead of having a member state by member state recycling schemes, we need to have regional recycling schemes. And the second thing that you touch on, James, is that any company designing a reverse logistics scheme would not have 900 recyclers or 900 nodes of participation. What we do is, to be more efficient, we'd really have like seven or eight nodes you know, strategically placed near industry that could reuse the raw materials, and then we would be able to then um, introduce the technology and also um, the innovations that would allow us to more efficiently um, you know, work in a circular economy. The thing that really matters to Microsoft, of course, is privacy and security. We want to make sure that our customers and our partners can recycle their electronic waste knowing that it's secure. And so that's why having um, more limited nodes where we have more control over the security and then being able to reintroduce our product back into a viable commercial channel is really important to us. But I think what I learned this morning um, in the work group with Edie is that other um, industries are facing the same problem in terms of scale and complexity. It's not just us. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and then I wanted to ask on that. So you've talked there a lot about what you guys are doing on the circular economy, but what about on the policy um, side of things? So here in the UK, net zero has just been enshrined into law, which will inevitably change the way that businesses um, operate. But do you think that the policy landscape is there for a circular economy in the areas where you operate? Um, I don't believe that they are, which is why um, we've really tried to work with other organizations, um, not just within our industry se sector, because when you really think about the materials that we may use in our hardware, it's the same materials that are being used in cars, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. So we need to reimagine, rethink you know, who our big business partners are in this space and go across industry sectors whether it's the airplane manufacturer or the car manufacturer or, you know, our hardware, we're all using batteries, we're all using, you know, wiring, computer um, equipment, boards. And so we really need to join together at scale to solve these problems and work with the policymakers in a way that makes sense from both a, a sustainability and a business frame of mind. It's really interesting that as well because one of the big tensions from the round table this morning was between what businesses can do and what consumers can do and yes. there's a lot of tension around the table about who's kind of responsible really in the end for, for trying to deliver this. Do, do you feel that's something that needs to be perhaps investigated more in terms of trying to find out, you know, is the messaging right to consumers about what they can do to change behaviour or, or is there something else that businesses could do to, to assist in, in, in changing that? I think we really need to be consumer focused. You know, for us, consumer focus and customer focus are the same. Yeah. So we really need to be um, consumer focused to find out why they're not recycling. I recently had the opportunity to speak in front of um, a host of green procurement officers, and I asked them who has 
electronics that are unused sitting in a drawer at home. Yeah. Okay, you're, I see you nodding your head, yes, James. <laughs> yes. Okay, and you know, I'd ask them why, why is that behavior happening? Why are they not turning that in to be recycled? Because obviously there are valuable materials, glass, metals in it, and it's because they're worried about their data in that sense. So I think we, in each instance, we need to understand, is it fear about privacy? Is it fear about um, the inconvenience? Is it just confusion about, we heard this morning about what bin do you put your food in? We just need to really um, educate people and enable them to have more learnings. For example, many consumers don't know that Microsoft software has a, a data wiping um, program that you could use on it to securely then go forward and recycle your software, your hardware, so we all can do better at educating, and we just need to keep with it because well, um, it's a partnership. Jen, it sounds like you've had a, a really busy London Climate Action Week, um, uh, almost as busy as, as the ED team as well. So, so what's what's the next year? Is it, is it back to Seattle and relax a little bit? Um, or? Well, next is a movie screening with PwC <laughs> um, tomorrow in WWF. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there are many ways of bringing forth our messaging, whether it's visual, whether it's um, podcasts or you know, or just simply face-to-face -face talking. So this is another way to do it, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they've come up with. Well, um, Joan, it's been a pleasure to finally uh, meet and speak to you after um, a month or so of email back and forth. So thank you so much yeah, for your thank time. Thank you. Thank you for the day. It's been wonderful. Thank you. And, um, of course, a big thanks to all the other people that we've spoken to so far um, across the course of this week. Uh, just a reminder for those listening to this episode and all our others uh, is available via the ED website. Just search Sustainable Business Covered and it can be downloaded via iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Um, but that's it from us. It's been it's been a hectic week. Um, so it's a it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. A goodbye from James. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>